past year, we've all had to reimagine our lives, searching for new sources of inspiration and new ways to connect. Hello. Hi. Hi. Hello. Hello. I'm Yana Peel, Global Head of Arts and Culture at Chanel, and this is Chanel Connects. Bringing together creative game changers from film, art, dance, music, and fashion in conversation from their homes and studios. I'm in the north of Scotland. I'm in my spare room. It's a very quiet area. A horrific shade of yellow. Still in New York City. Some are old friends and collaborators. Others are meeting for the first time. All are focused on what matters most and what happens next. And now we get to listen in. In this episode, actress Tilda Swinton connects with her longtime friend and collaborator, British Vogue's editor-in-chief, Edward Enenfell. The conversation was led by Nicholas Cullinan, director of the National Portrait Gallery. Could you tell where my head was at when you found me? Edward and Tilda, I wanted to begin by asking you um, where you are, because obviously we're talking through the medium of Zoom, as most of us use these days to communicate. So if you could just both tell me where you are. Tilda, you go. I'm um, in the north of Scotland, where I live. I'm sitting in my house. It's just stopped raining and it's looking very golden. I'm in that Zoom world. Where are you, Edward? I'm in London, in Lancaster Gate. Staring out my window to a very rainy and horrible day. And um, I'm in the Heinz Library and Archive of the National Portrait Gallery, so I have a very scholarly backdrop. Great, I love it. Well, you know, actually this room I'm in used to be a nightclub where Audrey Hepburn performed in the 1950s, so maybe that could be the next backdrop. Oh, that's amazing. Yep, that's a true fact. Wow. And then I wanted to ask you both, at the beginning of this year, if we can think that far back, what you thought you might be doing <laughs> at this time of year. <laughs> well, at the beginning of the year, I was so optimistic, like everybody else, this 2020 is going to be the best year ever. I was convinced by it. I was infused. And then come March, back home. And I haven't left since. I never thought that a pandemic could literally paralyze the whole world like it has. And I also never thought that one of the biggest social movements in history, really, in American history, you know, Black Lives Matter would have such a great impact all over the world. And yeah, it's been a real year of reckoning, I I guess. Edward, do you think that the Black Lives Matter movement would have had um, so much traction if it wasn't for lockdown? Do you think that gave us more focus and attention span? As a black person, I know that, you know, what happened to George Floyd happens a lot more than people Mm realise. I grew up in Ludwood Grove, you know, where being stopped by the police was part of daily life. And this goes on all the time. But because we were all, we're all at home, no distractions... (laughs) Mm-hmm. and literally focused on social media, the movement, you know, the protests were able to take on a life of its own. It wouldn't have happened otherwise, no. Some people are still trying to be distracted from it, but it, it, it is hard, hard work to be yeah. distracted from the realities of this reckoning. Tilda, I think that's a very good point. And I suppose the question to both of you is in your respective um, industries or, you know, art forms, 
Do you think there might be positive changes that come from the last few months? In terms of cinema, which is my drug of choice, cinemas are really, really elastic, bouncy old dame. She has survived so much. I, one of the first things I did at the beginning of lockdown was I kind of made for my favorites. I made for my favorite films. And I picked up again the massive two-part biography of one of my favorite filmmakers, Michael Powell, mm-hmm. and which is almost a biography of cinema itself because he started making films in the very, very beginning in, in the south of France um, with Rex Ingram's silent movies. And his description of the earthquake, the, the, the tsunami of nightmare of the coming of sound is really, was very telling. And you know, I started reading that and I got to that section in April, May. And the studios were all crashing. People were losing their livelihoods. People were thinking it's completely over because of sound. And then on we go. And then the coming of color, same thing. And on we go, on we go. And I, I, I'm not just being Pollyanna about it. I believe, and it's not just cine nerds and, and nuts like me who, who have missed cinema probably more than anything except our, <laughs> our friends and, and family. It's, um, it's everybody. Everybody said that the one thing, they, apart from live music, what we really want to do is go to the pictures. Yeah, yeah, I completely agree. I'm really missing it. Me too. Yeah. Well, my industry... Um... The fashion industry, as you know, had already been going through sort of a lot of change. I mean, my work at British Vogue since I started three years ago has been about inclusivity and shining a light on the other people who've been othered their whole lives, whether you're black, whether you're gay, you know, different religion, age, you know, we've tried to tackle that. And the interesting thing about this year was I think a lot of companies realised that it wasn't just enough to have people from different backgrounds on your feeds or in your campaigns that to really affect change, employing people behind the scenes was as important. I think that was the most important message that's come out this year, that to really affect change, you need change makers behind the scenes with a seat at a table, so to say. Absolutely. So that's been sort of really important. And for me personally, I went from sort of creating regular issues to get into June and realize, oh my God, we're in lockdown and how do I pivot the magazine into sort of meet the moment, as they say. Mm. So when they said, you know, women over 60 shouldn't leave their houses, I thought, what a great time to celebrate Judy Dench on the cover. Mm. You know, then from there we went into protests around the world and we had to reflect it. So we, we, we did a September issue sort of based on activists and people who were literally putting their lives on the line and changing the world. Mm -hmm. And in between that, I thought we were all so exhausted, we needed a break. So I did a series of 14 covers, landscapes by some of our best artists, you know, David Hockney, Martin Parr, David Sims, the best of British. And it was the minute I thought, Michael, we need a break. We need to breathe before we go Mm. on fighting again. I have a question for both of you, which is about celebrity culture, which seems to have lost some of its luster or appeal this year. Mm. Do you think this is something that might might carry on after this in both of your different spheres? One of my favourite covers since I've been at British Vogue really was the series that J.B. Hawksworth shot on all the essential workers. All these incredible people out there, the post-women, the, mm. the, the girl from Waitrose, the train drivers, these people who every single day... Mm 
were putting their lives on the line for us. And it felt important. It felt that these were the people who needed to be celebrated on the cover. So, you know, the industry's changed. The media landscape has changed. Heroes have changed. Yeah. And I think celebrities, yeah, celebrity culture will always be around, but I think it'll be sort of celebrities who stand for something, not just yeah. for themselves. And, and do something, because right now... And do something and fight for something. I think we've only just begun. I mean, I suppose yes. this is, you know, this, this makes me reflect that this is the reason I feel so, so confident about the future. I think that at the very bottom of all of this, all of this activism is, is actually about capital. It's about inequality. And it's the rise of the worker is what we're seeing. Yes. So yeah. everything that, that, that Edward's saying is in tune with that. That's not just to do with, uh, to do with the fashion industry. It's harder just to look good on a red carpet. You actually have to have a skill or a talent or a meteor. Yeah. yeah. So, I mean, has it, in a positive way, has it made both of you think about why you do what you do, looking back at, you know, your trajectory and what you want to do in the future? I mean, it has me, and I think a lot of other people. You tell us then, Nick, about how it has been. <laughs> well, yes. I'm curious. How, how's all this? How, 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 are you, how are you handling everything? How, how well, are you pivoting? I mean, um, I mean, we, so the National Portrait Gallery is an interesting example because we were scheduled to close in June anyway for a major refurbishment. And uh, that's now happening. What we've done, which is similar to what you're both saying, is um, in response to this, think about why we do what we do and who we do it for. And so in, in the early days of lockdown, we launched a project with the Duchess of Cambridge, who's our patron, who got in touch with a very good idea to essentially have a, a public competition and to um, invite people to submit photographs of their experiences during lockdown and all oh, different experiences. Okay. And we got uh, more than 31,000 entries. And it, it was really moving and quite profound to see the images that were submitted for all four corners of the country, all different experiences, all different walks of life. We did it as a digital exhibition. Mm. And it's now this big project all around the country on 400 different billboards. And so um, but what it's made us do is really kind of try to rise to the occasion, as you're both saying, in terms of thinking about, you know, why what you do matters and who it serves. For me, the real question and the challenge is, is all about narrative. It's all yeah. about stories. We are all, to a certain extent, in a state of grief because yeah. we're having to give up on all sorts of fantasies that we had and plans we had and projections into the future that we had. And we're having to recalibrate and regroup and in many ways start completely again. But I think that question of, of narrative, the way in which the stories stop. Oh, that's never going to happen. I'm not going to have that wedding. I'm not going to go on that holiday. I'm not going to graduate. I'm not going to get that job. I'm not. One just has to dig deeper and recalibrate one's courage yeah. and one's imagination. Tilda, that was exactly the word I was going to use, which I think for all of us, you know, in our respective spheres, I think it's made all of us live more within the realms of our imagination and to, and to draw on resources that are readily at hand, whether it's books or music or film or, you know, I think that's become even more important than ever, don't you think? I haven't felt, I, I can say, you know, it's been tough. It's been tough being away from my team. It's been tough being away from the office. You know, uh, every decision to sort of carry out takes days, but I haven't felt more creative. I haven't felt more inspired. Mm-hmm. I mean, when I look out there and I see a whole generation, you know, a whole generation of kids essentially leading marches all around the world. Yeah. 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 You know, people, 
creating incredible art online, music. I think, you know, when times like this happen, you go within yourself or in your, in your fantasies, mm-hmm. in your head, and mm-hmm. hopefully come up with something mm. that makes the world, you know, a slightly better place. I really believe that. I want to talk about something apart from this year now. Can I, can I take the conversation <laughs> back? <laughs> I want to ask you both um, about when you first met and when you first collaborated together. I've, I just remembered. You remembered because we tried to... <laughs> Which I remembered. Oh, yeah. Go, 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 go. I think it was in Paris at a fashion show. Okay. I went backstage and I remember saying to a friend of mine, oh my God, there's my favourite actress, Tilda Swinton, my God. <laughs> and, and I think I came up to you and introduced myself and you were so full of life and charming and everything I thought you'd be and smart. And, and I remember run, rushing back to my hotel room and calling Frank, the late Franca Sanzani, who was the editor-in-chief of Italian Vogue, and say, Franca, you have to, I, I'd love to shoot a story with Tilda Swinton. I haven't met anyone more inspiring. And I went to do it with Craig McDean. We were in Paris. And Franca was like, fine. And I remember tracking you down a studio, Metro, Metro Studios in London, where we <laughs> shot a story, a tribute to David Bowie. With you as David Bowie in the boiler suits, one of my favorite stories ever. It was such fun. And that, <laughs> in fact, I'm in the wrong room for it, but hanging, if I was sitting in another room, that it's hanging. I see it every day wow. from, that, um, from that shoot. Uh, yeah, that was, but I sort of can't remember a time we didn't know each other. My history with Tilda is sort of quite long. At ID, you know, we just shot, Italian Vogue would just shoot. And then I went to W Magazine and whenever Tilda felt she wanted to say something through photographs or whatever, she was there. It was never to promote anything, ever. You know, she's, I'm the, I say, yo, the ultimate, she's the ultimate muse for me. So whenever I get a call or I call and she's ready, it's like a great day. <laughs> And I do remember a very, very funny moment when I was shooting a film in America. Michael Clayton? (laughs) No, I didn't say. I was shooting Michael Clayton on the streets of New York. I think it was kind of quite late in the day. I think it was, I suppose, a commuter moment when people were going home from work. It was on the streets and we were preparing to do quite a sort of intense scene. And um, I was running through. The camera was not actually turning at the time. And Edward just popped up. And I was standing there dressed as this, I mean, I thought unrecognizable, but obviously not. It rather hurt my feelings that he knew who I was. Um, and he, 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 he ran up to me and started chatting to me. And, and over his shoulder was George Clooney, who I was supposed to be doing a scene with. And um, I, it took quite a long time to get through to him that I was actually in the middle of shooting a scene. It was so sweet. Oh, oh my God, that's what Literally walked into the middle of the scene. <laughs> <laughs> You stole the show. <laughs> Can you tell us more about the Amor of a Funk? Because I'm dying to see it, the human voice. Yes, we, we had this plan. Last year, I was in Colombia shooting with another master, Apichat Ponga, etc. Um, and I had a, the graceful opportunity to open an email from, from Pedro Almodovar saying that he wanted us to shoot something, an adaptation of Jean Cocteau's La Voix Humaine, the human voice, oh, which is sort of like, you know, tablet in stone as far as I'm concerned. And um, anyway, we had this plan and we were sort of tinkering with the plans at the beginning of the year. And then everything fell off the edge of the flat earth. And we thought, probably won't be doing it anytime soon. And then as the weeks went by, 
we just all kind of, you know, looked at each other through the ether and said, no, let's try and do it. It's a tiny, tiny film. It's a monologue. It's a woman and a dog. And we can do it. We can control it. Yeah. And so in July, I went to Madrid and we shot. And it was very interesting because I think we might have been the first sort of cinema production, even though we're a sm very small film, we're only 30 minutes. I think we were the first cinema production to, to start rolling after full-time full, full lockdown. And we took a sort of selfie on the set and somebody with social media tweeted it out and it went completely viral. And it was very moving to me. And I think it was because, I mean, funnily enough, this, this tips us into the idea of portraiture. People just went crackers for this photograph because it, I suppose it was, first of all, good news. It was somebody's doing something in cinema. But I think it was also a kind of, oh, they're able to do it. And it was a portrait. I mean, it's kind of interesting, that, that photograph. The, you both can tell me about how significant these images can be on social media. They become yeah. portraits because they have the yeah. spirit of the moment. That's what a good Instagram portrait for me is, when it captures the moment. I like when the work is about the times we live in mm. yeah. and the people who live in that time. I wanted to ask you two a question because I've been thinking about it all day. And I actually asked Sandro, my sweetheart, who's a painter, what yeah. makes a portrait a portrait? What is a portrait? And because we all know, I think, that it's possible to set out to make a portrait and to make a bad portrait. Yeah. That doesn't necessarily mean that it's not a portrait. It's just a bad portrait. But what is it, do you two think? What is it that makes a portrait? It's a really good question because it's not just about likeness or, you know, physiognomy or representation. You could have a portrait of someone that's completely mimetic and is, you know, obviously someone's face, mm -hmm. but doesn't express anything of their inner life or interiority. So I think portraiture is always about a balance of those two things. It's the exterior. But then a good portrait has something of the inner life of the subject. That's what I look for. Yeah. What about the inner life of the, of the artist, the inner life of the photographer or the painter? Sometimes you get that too. I, I think, I mean, it's a truism, isn't it, that every portrait is also a portrait of the, the artist or the photographer. And I think that's true. I, th I think it is always a collaboration, don't you think? It's, yeah. It's, you know, it's a negotiation between, between yeah. the, the sitter and the, and the artist. Yeah, I mean, the artist, you know, they get locked into what is known as a style. Mm -hmm. yeah. Photographer, you know, so a portrait is of somebody else, but essentially sometimes of someone's style. Mm -hmm. about photography. So that, I like that, that, that dance between the two. I suppose one of the reasons that I ask is because I have been, you know, I, 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 have, to, I have to do all sorts of fancy footwork when, if ever anybody asks me about my work, because there are certain words I feel uncomfortable using. Mm -hmm. And that's partly because I'm trying to be authentic and honest about, I mean, I find it very difficult to call myself an actor, partly because I never, ever intended to be an actor or an actress for that matter. Um, it, it, I feel a bit of a fraud when it comes to, to, to that, you know, n nomination. Because so so much of my work was autobiographical when I was starting out working with Derek Jarman. I worked yes. with Derek Jarman for seven years and most of our work was... Uh, or nine years rather, on seven projects, most of it was silent. And so I never, and, I, and autobiographical, because I wasn't necessarily interpreting anything. I mean, even, even what I call real actors talk about characters. They'll say, oh, I played this character. And so people have picked this up and they say, oh, well, t tell us about your character. I find it really, I've had sort of inhibition about using the word character. And I always talk about, I feel much more comfortable saying, I made a portrait. 
Mm. I made a portrait of this. Oh, wow. I love that. And I can't quite figure out why that feels more comfortable in my mouth to say I'm making a portrait of this person rather than I'm creating a character. Um, Interesting. Well, Tilda, I I strongly approve. Um, (laughs) Actually, I I was thinking about this this weekend, just looking forward to this conversation. I was thinking, of course, about Orlando, Mm -hmm. which was one of your pivotal roles, but also, you know, it's so interesting that obviously the the Virginia Woolf story spans Mm -hmm. 500 years from essentially the Tudors to now. It includes portraiture. Mm -hmm. And I was thinking how interesting it is in terms of our conversation. And it's the most referenced film in history, in fashion. (laughs) (laughs) Every year there's an Orlando-inspired show. Oh shoot! <laughs> I think the Met, you know, you know, the Met, the Met show is is inspired by it this yes. this year. Yes. Really? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Well, I think I think it's you know Virginia Woolf kind of nailed it. You know, she's really not talking about changes at all. She's talking about a fluid, all-embracing, completely consistent spirit. I mean, one of the things I'm clear about with Orlando, having reread it very recently, is it's not actually about gender at all. It's not interested in gender at all. If there's one sort of byline that's remembered from the book and mainly from the film is that it's gender bending, which, of course, is a kind of slightly arcane term now, because I hope we're getting to the point when we're even beyond tired old gender, binary gender. But um, she's not interested in tired old binary gender at all. And that, I mean, that relates today, going back to the generation of today who are non-binary, who don't want to be, you know, put in a box, who want to be who their authentic selves. And I think Orlando really... (laughs) Yeah. Plays into that, you know. Well, I, I always think it's about time and it's about within time change and continuity and the way those two things interlace. And that's something that we think about a lot, you know, at the Portrait Gallery, which is about how you can use history to yeah. do something relevant or even radical. There's a thing that I've become really clear about, in certainly in my own mind, my own perspective about cinema, which is that there's no such thing as an old film. Yeah. And to a certain extent, I feel is that would you say true of portraiture that there's no? I mean, I had the the the, the opportunity a, a, a year or so ago to to sort of hang out for quite a long time in the Kunsthistorisches Museum in Vienna, and I hung out with those late Rembrandts, like mm-hmm. face to face yeah. for several hours at a time. I mean, truly, it's like walking into a vortex. And it was an encounter with, there's no time there. There's nothing. What would you say about that? No, completely. I think I think that's what a great portrait does. It's transformative and it cuts yes. across time and it, and it almost essentially sort of acts as a bridge between the viewer and the sitter. You're looking at mm-hmm. someone face to face, you know, a great portrait, whether it's by Rembrandt or, you know, whoever can achieve that. And the other thing you can do, of course, within a gallery is you can have juxtapositions and dialogues between mm. different epochs, different periods. And that's something we're very keen to do. I mean, not to be anachronistic, and I think it's important to, to understand the specificity of a particular portrait or a sitter or even a, a sort of moment in time and what was happening mm-hmm. and what might be similar or different, but you can always create a dialogue. And I think the idea that somehow things that are older are therefore, you know, less relevant, not at all. You know, things, <laughs> things are cyclical as well. I mean, I'm, Edward, I'm sure, you know, in the yeah. fashion world, you understand this concept very much that things yeah. come back and go away. And come back, yeah. I mean, I, I had this wonderful apprenticeship as an artist with Derek Jarman. Oh, I yeah. fell 
very quickly into a world where I felt very uh, at home. And it, one of the things that used to make us, I mean, for, for a millisecond indignant and then just hysterically, we found it very amusing, was the idea that there was such a thing as a mainstream and that we fit. <laughs> We just assumed that, you know, there are many, many, many different mainstreams and, you know, and what was considered a kind of bourgeois mainstream, you know, would be right over there, some sort of muddy little stream. Yeah. And our mainstream was where it was really at. Yeah. <laughs> How does that, I mean, I'm sensing, I've always sensed that you you must feel that and you must be feeling it particularly now in terms of Black Lives Matter, that, you know, people are beginning to realise, because it's all about, everything having always been there. It's not about anything new. It's about just acknowledging that everything has always, always been there. Is that yeah, right? Yeah. Everything has always been there. It's really weird to, when people see you as the other, because mm. to me, I'm me. Mm. You know, to me, I'm mainstream, if you want to put it that totally, way. Totally, exactly. <laughs> you know, exactly. My, the friends I have, you know, we all share similar experiences. Yeah. But what's been great about this year is the empathy that has come out in this world, the empathy of putting yourself in other people's shoes and saying, oh my God, what can I do? The world is not an even playing field. You know, and it's time to just break those boxes and, you know, try and create one big mainstream, whatever that is, that includes everyone. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, I grew up in ID magazine and we were very sort of, our little clique and the mainstream was over there. Fast forward 30 years later, I'm working at Vogue and I haven't changed. No, the mountain has come to Mohammed. <laughs> <laughs> but the world, I like to think the world has moved on and the world has progressed to a place that a black man, gay from West London, mm. from a working class family can be the editor of Vogue. And the beauty is for me is that people can now look at me and Think, oh, if he can do it, I can do it. Exactly. I mean, we're different generations, but I feel that we're kind of, you know, bonded by a similar sensibility yes. and, this, and a similar cultural moment. And yeah. that feeling of the breaking down of a kind of snobbery and gatekeeperishness. Yes. I was listening to an old interview and someone said something about selling out. And I went, people have stopped talking about selling out because, and I'm happy about that because it's, you know, what does that mean actually? I suppose it means giving yourself away and leaving yourself outside the door when you go in. But I hope that it's true that of all three of us, I'm, I'm, yeah. you know, that we don't go into doors that we can't take ourselves in. And yeah. fortunately we're living at a time when that will go on being the case. Don't you think selling out is spiritual? It's not economic or about metrics. It's not like how much money you make or how many people yeah. you reach. It's about whether you really believe in what you're doing or not. No. That's the difference. It's yeah. about integrity and about yeah. authenticity. Integrity, authenticity, questioning. I think we all question. I do that every day. I question myself every day. Am I do is this is this the right thing to do? Is this the right message? And I don't stop. And I think Nicholas, you're the same. I mean, your Michael Jackson exhibition. Can we talk about that? Oh wow! Sure. Oh, can wow. we talk about that? Wow. Yeah. One of the most progressive exhibitions. I mean, talk about the unseen. Talk about you know questioning and putting out something that can change the world of yeah. art. How did you think that was going to be received? When you th- how did it all start? Yeah, tell us. Well, I mean, like a lot of ideas for exhibitions, I've had the idea for years and years and years. You know, Michael Jackson is someone I grew up with, like many people that I've always been, you know, fascinated by. 
And years ago, I realized in, in researching another exhibition, which was about Andy Warhol and his legacy, that also um, Jackson happened to have been the most depicted cultural figure by, you know, an extraordinary array of artists from Andy Warhol all the way through to, to now. And so when I, when I started here at the Portrait Gallery about five years ago, I was thinking of ways to just evolve the conversation and to, and to try and shake things up, but in, a, in an intelligent way, not just to shock for the sake of it. And this seemed like a really interesting way. Uh, it's kind of like the Trojan horse mentality, yeah, I guess, where yeah. you, you take a big name that obviously everyone recognizes and everyone can relate to, but you use that to do something interesting. And, and the, the effect was there was 50 artists in the show and I don't know the numbers, but you know most of those artists were either African-American or Black British. So mm -hmm. it changed the stroke, the demographic of artists we worked with, but equally it completely changed our audience. You know, mm -hmm. we went, mm -hmm. suddenly overnight we had like 25%, um, you know, sort of, I, I don't like this acronym B-A-M-E, but that's still one of the acronyms that's being used. I hate it. <laughs> I, I think we're getting rid of it now, which is good. So, um, but you know, I mean, essentially 25% mostly Black audience, 25% under 25 audience, it completely shifted our demographic, but it was done. Yes. It wasn't done. All of those things are happy accidents, but it's got to be done because you, you know, I personally really was fascinated by this and I believed in it and I wanted to do it. And I didn't particularly care uh, as long as I felt that I'd done a good job with integrity. I didn't really care what people said or thought either. I think that's how you have to do things, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, for me, I just think of a kid growing up in London, you know, a kid from diverse background, saying to mum, like I used to do, I have to go to the National Portrait Gallery. I have to, that in itself is a beautiful thing. Yeah, we, want, we want to be relevant to everyone, you know, and we belong to everyone. It's, it's held in trust um, for the nation and that includes everyone. So we, we really want to, and I, I know that some people were saying, oh, you know, Michael Jackson. And I said, well, yeah, but if you wait three months, then we're doing gain spreads. So if you don't like this, just wait for three months and there'll be something for you, you know. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's fine that we speak to different audiences at different times. We should be. I don't think we should just speak to one type of audience. Diversity of perspective. Yeah. Maybe, yeah. maybe you should change the name to Gallery of National Portraits. <laughs> Thank you. That might be something we do while we're closed. When you come back. <laughs> um, so just to conclude, if you could talk a little bit about what's next or, or maybe how we learn lessons from this year, what you're going to take from this experience to your next project. I'm in a very privileged position. I'm privileged in that my work is work that I devise and develop myself, and that's not changing. And the work that I am developing at the moment is relatively easily achieved. I'm just rolling on with my colleagues and being incredibly grateful. When I made the film with Pedro Almodovar in um, July, it was an extremely moving experience for all of us to simply work, just to be on the floor of that studio and work for 10 days only but to notice how much we love working. And so I'm just rolling on basically and, and being as grateful as I can and counting my blessings. Good. Um, I feel the same as Tilda, you know, you know, this year has really taught me a lot about the world we live in and culture. And I just really want to carry on sort of creating a magazine that's inclusive, that speaks to real women, talks about real women's stories and just really keep questioning what is culture today, what is fashion today, what is beauty today.
Thank you both so much, Edward and Tilda. That was fantastic. Thank you, Nick. Thank you, Nick. I, I, look, I, I look forward to seeing you in real life soon. Yes, please. I can't wait. <laughs> I look forward to part two. Yes, in the flesh. <laughs> Keep it going. Definitely. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Chanel Connects. Don't forget, you can subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast app to get new episodes as soon as they're released. <laughs>